Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on March the 12th in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. is in there swatting flies. Uh, what? Mosquitoes. You got mosquitoes already? Oh boy. Well, it has been wet around here. Wet and warm, but now, now we've got a cold spell. Welcome to St. Louis. Welcome to the Midwest. And I guess I shouldn't be complaining for those of you that live on the East Coast. You've been hit by two horrendous snowstorms. Nor'easters. I remember. I remember what it was like. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids. Now, some of them we remember from television, but many of them we remember hearing on the radio in the uh, last great days of radio back in the late 50s and early 60s. We have a good lineup tonight. We have four shows. We're going to do four shows, and we're going to do an episode of Dragnet. We have a Halls of Ivy, a Have Gun Will Travel, and of course, we're going to end up with a, a fun episode of, and a tragic episode of, of Gunsmoke. I think you're going to like the lineup. So why don't you get yourself comfortable, because we're going to get started in just a moment. going to start off tonight with an episode of Dragnet from 1952. Let's see, it's from 10-19, um, October the 19th, 1952. The name of this episode is The Big Pill, and uh, this is uh, in the early days uh, while Barton Yarbrough was still alive, and he played uh, Sergeant Ben Romero. I used to always like Ben Alexander the best, <clears throat> and I think Ben Alexander really kind of defined 
Joe Friday's sidekick, and it, they were so good with him. But ever since I really got hooked on uh, I Love a Mystery, I, I have a new respect for Part Yarborough, who was in the uh, first go-around of I Love a Mystery back in the 30s. Dragnet debuted on radio somewhat inauspiciously. Jack Webb and his uh, broadcast company worked out the program's format, format and eventually... Uh, they became very comfortable doing their characters. Friday was originally portrayed as a more brash, forceful cop than uh, he showed later in his uh, kind of relaxed demeanor. And as we brought out, his first partner was Sergeant Ben Romero, played by Barton Yarborough, a longtime radio actor. Raymond Burr was on board to play Chief of Detectives Ed Backstrand. And when Dragnet finally hit its stride, it became one of radio's top-rated shows. Interestingly enough, Raymond Burr Sometimes you could also hear him play one of the heavies, one of the crooks that they were after in some of those early episodes. So this one comes to us from 1952, and it's entitled The Big Pill, and here it comes. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. Naval intelligence tells you that two Marines have been picked up with the shore patrol. They're reported sick. One is in critical condition. Foul play is suspected. Your job? Investigate. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, July 10th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. It was 7.58 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Morning, Joe. Hi. Just get in? Yeah. Anything in the book? I'm looking. What's the matter? Are you hacked about something? No, no. Why do you ask that? Well, figures you're sore about something. What do you do, take a sour pill? You keep this up, you won't be asked to pose for toothpaste ads. Well, now, that's funny. All right, Joe. Tell your Uncle Dudley. What's the matter? Well, I said court deal yesterday. It was miserable. Hmm. Thing you and Gaffney been working out? Yeah, the white glove bandit. Came up while you were out on vacation. Spent over a month on it. Covered it from every angle. Yeah. Looked like we had the guy any way he turned. We had an idea how much he'd taken on each job. Lee thought he traced him on every move he made on each of the deals. We figured we really had the guy. DA's office thought so, too. They quit him? Yeah. Let him walk right out. Twelve men, good and true. Let that cheap hoodlum walk right out on the streets a free man. Well, that's the way it goes sometimes. Mm. Is there Mr. Friday here? Yes, sir. I'm Friday. Is there something I can do for you? Well, I'm Richard Houston, Naval Intelligence. Deputy Chief Brown directed me to you. I see. Well, it's my partner, Frank Smith, Lieutenant Houston. Hello, Hello Smith. Smith. Like, sit down, sir. What is it we can do for you? Well, we got a weird one. That's why we thought your department ought to be in on it. About all I can tell you is just the skeleton of the thing. We don't know all the details. We haven't gone into it completely yet. We figured you fellas would like to be in on it from the beginning. Looks like it's going to be a police investigation. Yes, sir. To begin, I should go back three weeks ago and tell you the story as near as we've been able to reconstruct it. Yes, sir. Go right ahead. Well, a couple of Marines left the base. They'd just gotten back from Korea, both on a 48-hour pass. We figured they came up here to L.A. 
They had a lot of back pay in their pockets. We don't know where they started, but they ended up in a cheap hotel. We got a call from the shore patrol early Monday morning. They'd gotten a complaint that the two boys were causing a disturbance in the hotel. They picked them up and found they both were in a pretty bad way. They had them shipped to the naval hospital down at Long Beach. By the time they got there, they were really rocky. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't quite see just how we're connected with this. Well, I'm getting to that. I'm sorry. It's all right. I'm a little long-winded. Anyway, last night, the boys had been AWOL for over two weeks. They were brought into the hospital, like I said. Doctors did what they could, but it was too late to help. One of the boys died late last night. We're not sure about the other one. That's where you come in. Sir? They were both poisoned. a.m. Frank and I talked with Captain Lorman, then we checked out a trip car and left for Long Beach. When we got there, we talked with the doctor in charge. He told us that it would be later that night before the boy would be completely said, however, that we could talk to him if we phrased our questions so that the answers could be kept fairly brief. We looked over the boy's record. His full name was Jack Wayne Walker, age 24. He'd enlisted in the Marine Corps on January 14, 1950. He'd spent almost a year in the Far East, and his service record had been good until this time. The record of the victim, PFC Edward Monahan, was pretty much the same. The boys had both come from the same town in Arkansas. The date of their enlistment was the same. They'd served overseas the same time. At 3.48 p.m., the doctor ushered us into Jack Walker's room. Who are you? Police officers, Jack. We'd like to talk to you. Well, what's it about? I haven't done anything. At least I don't think I did. No, it's not that. We'd like to find out what happened while you were up in L.A. Well, I killed my buddy up there. That's what happened. You heard about that, didn't you? Yes, we did. That's what we want to talk to you about. Poor Ed. Year in Korea. Guys taking pot shots at us. Cold, mud. Then we got to come back here to get it. I didn't trust that little crumb. I knew we shouldn't have had anything to do with him. Well, you shouldn't have trusted who, Jack? Stubby. You know the rest of his name? No, just Stubby. I just can't believe it about Ed. We shoved off for L.A. going to have a last fling. Ed was getting married as soon as we got home. All right, if you could just start right at the beginning. Oh, sure. Well, first, we both had a 48-hour pass. We figured to go to L.A., like I said, for last fling. A few drinks, look at some of the lights, have a little fun. Sort of a bachelor party for Ed before he got hitched, you mm-hmm. know? Well, we pulled into town. Let's see. Uh, I think it was Saturday morning. Uh, a couple of buddies told us about a joint up there where we could have some fun. Yeah. Well, we head up there. and Nice little place that hour of the morning. I guess about uh, 10, 10.30. Well, we start in to drink. It gets pretty foggy after that. Like little parts in a jigsaw, you know? Mm-hmm. You sort of see a little bit of everything, but the whole picture ain't there. Yeah. Well, I remember we hung around the place for two days, and then it all really goes black. The next thing I remember, we woke up in some flea bag. I remember looking at the calendar on the wall. We was already a couple of days AWOL. Ed and I talked about what we should do. Mm-hmm. And then we get to trying to think up an excuse for the CO for being AWOL. Well, our CO ain't easy. He's had experts try it. Ed says he figured out something, so we start for the bus depot, get back to base. On the way, we pass this bar, and Ed says, well, maybe we ought to stop and have one more for the road, so we do. And I don't remember much for a couple more days. Mm-hmm. And I remember once we stopped and watched the guy get tattooed, Ed and I got talking about it, you know, whether or not we should have it done. Finally, I figured it was kind of kid stuff, so we didn't. I remember that because it was right after we left the tattoo place, went to this bar, we met Stubby. Well, this is the fellow that you were talking about? Yeah, it's him. And you met him in a bar, isn't uh-huh, it? Uh-huh, yeah. Ed and I were sitting there trying to figure out what was going to do, you know. We were pretty broke by this time, and then two, we was over two weeks AWOL. Anyway, he sliced it, we had big trouble. Yeah. Well, we walks into this place. It was about 4.35 or 5 in the afternoon. At least near as I can tell, that's about what time it was. A 
whole deal gets kind of foggy. We sat down at this bar and ordered a drink and just sitting there minding our own business, trying to figure what we ought to do. And then this stubby joker comes up, sits down next to Ed, brings a drink with him. He was in the bar when you came in, is that right? Yeah, well, at least I think so. I didn't pay much attention, but he had a drink when he came up to Ed and me. Yeah, go ahead. Well, he got to talking about the core, and next thing we know, he's setting up the drinks. Mm-hmm. The way we was fixed, as long as he wanted to buy, we wasn't going to argue. Mm-hmm. Did they seem to know this stubby in the bar? Yeah, a girl waits on tables called him my name. All right, you want to go ahead? Yeah, well, this stubby kept going on about how he liked the core and how he'd won a whole flock of citations in Korea. Told us all about the time he'd spent in Japan. First, we thought he was just throwing a bunch of coconuts at us, but we'd ask him about places in Korea and things you could only know if you was there. He'd come up with the answers all right, but even with all that, there was something that just didn't ring true with him. Yeah. Anyway, long about 8 or 8.30 that night, Stubby got in a thrash with the bartender, something about the price of the drink, so he suggested we go up to his place and get a jug, you know, and drink up there. Well, I wasn't too hot for the idea, but Ed said we had nothing to lose and we didn't have a sack for the night, and there wasn't much dough left, so we shoved off with him. Where'd this stubby live? A hotel down on 5th. I'll tell you how to find the place. Same place you were picked up in? Yeah. We got the address then. Oh, then okay. Well, what happened when you got Stubby's room? Oh, we cracked the jug, sat around drinking for a while, and then Ed and I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. I tell you, the next morning we had the biggest hangovers in the entire United States and Canada, both of us. We felt miserable. Ed started beefing about the cheap booze Stubby rung in on us. That's when he tried to tout us on them pills. What pills are those? Oh, them things supposed to relieve hangovers. Oh, you mean the kind they sell in drugstores? Oh, no, not them. Uh, Stubby told us about that one. Uh, he'd come back to the States. He'd stood some duty in a hospital and said that while he was there, he got them pills. Said there was a special prescription that they was great for head shrinking. He wanted us to try them. Did you? Well, no, not right away. He kept after us, though, kidding us about being big, tough Marines with a hangover. And then he took one of the pills, and leastwise we thought he did, so Ed and I figured then we didn't have anything to lose. You took one of these hangover pills then, did you? Yeah, we both did. Mm-hmm. What happened then? Well, nothing right away. Stubby said take a little time for it to take effect. We got up and started to get dressed. And Ed and I thought we'd better get back to the base, you know. We'd probably be in enough trouble as it was without worrying about a hangover. Yeah. You left the room? No, we was just getting our stuff together and Ed took sick. Said he had an awful pain in his stomach like a cramp, you know. We asked Stubby if the pill could have caused it. He said no. It must have been the booze. Mm. Well, right about then, I was getting ready to mop up the place with this Stubby. I figured, sure, he'd given us a mickey. I couldn't figure why, though. And then it hit me. A pill, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Real bad cramps in my stomach. I got real dizzy. The room started to go around. And we asked the Stubby to call a doctor, and that's when we knew he was really in trouble. How's that? Well, we knew then he was nuts off his trolley. Neither of us could walk. Ed doubled up and passed out, and I could hardly keep awake. We both just lay there on the floor. I kept asking this bum to get us a medic. Mm -hmm. Did he? No, he just stood there and laughed at us. Laughed like a crazy fool. He kept saying we was big, strong Marines. We should be able to take a little stomach ache without running to a doctor. At no time did he make any attempt to get your medical help? No, just like I said, he just stood there and laughed at us. Then he got real mean. Got crazy leer on his face. Said he'd show us that he'd fix us up good for what we'd done. Well, what do you mean by that? I don't know. All I thought about was getting Ed and me to a dock. About this time, I didn't much care what the little screwball did. Then it really started hopping on how he's getting even with us. I tried to get at him. I'd have killed him if I could have. I, I tried to get at him, but I fell and went out, I guess. And that's when he said that thing about that we wouldn't be the last ones he'd get. What? Well, he said like this, you guys are the first, just the first. But there's going to be more, a lot more. <laughs> 
continued to talk to Jack Walker. He gave us a complete description of the man he'd known as Stubby. And going over the story again with him, there were a few changes in it, but none that couldn't be accounted for by his condition. We got the address of the bar where he'd met Stubby. We checked with the doctor, and he told us that both boys had been given a powerful corrosive poison. He went on to say that it was a miracle that Jack Walker was still alive. 9.26 p.m. Frank and I drove back to Los Angeles. We checked into the office and ran the name Stubby through the moniker file in R&I, but we found nothing. We got out a local and an APB on the description and the name. The stats office started a run on the M.O. Frank and I checked the hotel on 5th Street, and the manager showed us the room, but he said that it had been cleaned and occupied since the two Marines had left. Leighton Prince went over the room but failed to come up with anything. We took the hotel registration card and booked it in as evidence. The man had signed his name as Alton Richards. The manager gave us the same description as the one we'd gotten from the Marines. We ran the name through R&I, but we failed to come up with any new leads. There'd been no replies to the broadcast, and the stats office had finished the run and had come up with four possible suspects. These were checked out, but they let us nowhere. 2.30 a.m., we checked the bar, but we found it was closed. Wednesday, 8.14 a.m., we briefed Captain Lorman on the developments, and then we went over to again check the bar where the two Marines were supposed to have met Stubby. The place was deserted except for one man drinking a beer. The waitress was sitting in a rear booth, filing her fingernails. Frank and I went back to talk to her. Yeah, something you want? Well, police officers, miss. We'd like to talk to you. Cops, huh? Yes, ma'am. This is my partner, Joe Friday. My name's Smith. Smith? Oh, boy, does that sound phony. Here's my ID card. Yeah, it's Smith, all right. What do you want? Do you mind if we sit down? No, go ahead. Live. Thank you. What's this all about? Do you work here steady? Yeah, most of the time. What's your name, miss? Vera. Vera Gay. Well, miss Gay, were you working here around the 8th and 9th or the 10th of July? Yeah, and you can make it Vera. Mm-hmm. You know most of the people who come in here regularly, do you? Yeah, I suppose so. I wonder if you'd look at this description and tell us if you know the man here. W-M-A. What does that mean? White male American. Yeah, W-M-A. 36 years, 5 feet 7 to 5 feet 9... 155-pound stubby. Yeah? Yeah, I know him. Comes in here all the time. Nice guy. Loud when he gets drunk. He's always nice to me, though. Tells me I should be in pictures. You know, the movies? Yes, ma'am. Have you seen him today? No, he hardly ever gets in before maybe noon, one o'clock. Hey, this doesn't bother you, does it? Am I following my nails? Not at all. He does bother some people, you know. Mm-hmm. Like running a piece of chalk down a blackboard. Miss Stubby, does he have any other name? Would you know it? Yeah, Paul Rogers. That's another one, Joan. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead, miss? Yeah, I went out with him a couple of times, finally gave it up. I couldn't go that route. What's that, ma'am? All he talked about was either him and the Marine Corps and what a big hero he was, or else how he was going to get me in pictures, you know, movies. Yes, ma'am. I didn't come out to California to get in the movies. Well, I came out to be a private secretary, only those jobs are a little hard to get, so I work here. Make enough for coffee and cakes. And when a job comes along, I'll take it. Work in a big office, nice boss. Who knows, he might even marry me. Well, that movie hokum for me. No, sir, not your little Vera. Did you work on the night of the ninth? It's the night before last. Let's see. Yeah, I was in. You happened to see the stubby Rogers that night? Well, I got to think about that. Let's see. That was the night we had the fight just before closing. Yeah, he was in earlier. You happen to notice if he was with anybody? What's it all about? He'd do something you want him for? No, we just like to talk to him. Yeah. Well, if he did anything, we had nothing to do with it. This is a good place. We got nothing to do with the people who come in. Got the price of a drink, they get served. We don't ask for trouble. Oh, we aren't going to cause any trouble, miss. We just want to talk to this Rogers. Yeah, well, as long as we aren't running into it. Do you remember if he was with anyone? 
Yeah, he was with a couple of Marines. Left with him, had a beef with Sam. He's a night bartender. Complained that the drinks were too high. I don't know what he was crying about. He's been drinking here a long time. Never had problems before. You saw him leave with these two Marines then? Yeah, three of them walked out. I think, actually, they sort of floated out. The two kids were really boiled. You remember what time it was when they left? Oh, that'd be kind of hard to tell. We were pretty busy. It was pretty important, miss. Yeah, let me think. I guess maybe around 8, maybe 8.30, around in there. It's just a guess, though. Do you have any idea where this Rogers lives? Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. Hotel on South Hill. Mm-hmm. Can you give us the address? Yeah, I got it in my purse. I should have known he was a phony, always saying as how he could get me in pictures, you know, in movies. Yes, ma'am. Don't come that way. Of course, you understand I didn't come out here to get in pictures. I came out to be a private secretary. Here's the address. Here, keep it. I won't be using it anymore. All right, thank you, Miss Kate. Here's our card. If you think of anything more you think we ought to know, we'd appreciate a call from you. Yeah, thanks. Sure appreciate your help. Well, you never know. Maybe I'll need your help sometime. Matter of fact, you might be able to lend me a hand. What's that, miss? You know any picture producers? You know, movies? Frank called the name Paul Rogers into the office and a supplementary broadcast and an APB were gotten out. A stakeout was arranged on the bar. We went back to the city hall and a check through R&I on the name Paul Rogers netted us nothing. We drove over to the hotel on South Hill. The manager told us that Rogers was not in his room. He went on to say that Rogers had not been using his room regularly for the past week or so, but that he had been in a couple of days before in the company of a soldier, and that as far as he knew, the soldier was still in. In the company of the manager, Frank and I went upstairs. The manager unlocked the door and we went in. Minimum, Frank, there's someone in bed. Yeah. Come on, you. How about it? Just a minute. How about it, Joe? I don't know. He's dead. Wednesday, July 11th, 12.40 p.m. We called the coroner's office, then we got in touch with the crime lab and the photographers. After the pictures had been taken, the body was removed. The victim was a soldier in his mid-thirties. On the nightstand beside the bed, we found an empty pill bottle and a suicide note. The note was booked as evidence and turned over to Don Meyer for comparison with a handwriting taken from the hotel registration card that Rogers had signed. The men from Leighton Prince went over the place thoroughly. They came up with several classifiable prints. Fingerprints found on the bottle belonged to the victim. There were several other sets in the room which were not identified. The crime lab went over the room, and then they went back to the lab to make their analysis. All officers in the area were alerted to be on the lookout for Rogers. Frank and I talked to the manager of the hotel, a Henry Corey. He told us that Rogers had lived in the hotel for the past four and a half months. He said that Rogers was quiet, kept pretty much to himself, and for the most part was a good tenant. He said that on several occasions Rogers had gotten behind in his rent, but that he'd always managed to come up with the money. The manager told us that in the conversations he'd had with Rogers, the main topic had been the Marine Corps and the suspect's record overseas. Rogers presented himself as an armchair general, constantly calling down the way the situation was being handled. He would refer to his own exploits, but when questioned about his leaving the service, he became vague and evasive. Additional handwriting samples were obtained and sent to Meyer. The manager told us that the latest victim had come in with Rogers the night before, and that at the time he'd been pretty drunk. They'd gone upstairs, and when Rogers had left in the morning, the manager had assumed that the soldier had gone the night before. 3.20 p.m. Frank and I went back to relieve the stakeout at the bar. Back again? Yes, Miss Gay. Sit down. Thank you. <laughs> it seems like every time I see you, I'm doing something with my nails. This morning, filing them, now I'm filing them again. 
I'm going to put polish on them after this. I guess you think I'm pretty vain. No, not at all, miss. New color called Frosted Rose. and pretty? Mm-hmm. Kind of iridescent, is what the label says. To sprinkle your nails with stardust. Yes, ma'am. It's a pretty bottle, too. They sure put things up nice nowadays. Uh-oh, here comes your boy. That's Rogers. Yeah. Yes, Stubby, well, it be. Bourbon Coke. How's it going, Stubby? Same old six as before. Yeah, pretty dull. Yeah, you're doing a great business. Ah, oh, it's early yet. Here's your drink. It'll be four bits. There you go. All right, thanks, good. All right, Frank, let's go. No trouble now. Not unless he makes it. Hi, fellas. Something you want? You Paul Rogers? Yeah, who are you? Police officers. We'd like to talk to you. I don't want any trouble in here. No, there's not going to be any trouble. Always fights. Why is it everybody comes into a bar and starts fights? Ain't there someplace else to be? All right, come on, Rogers. What for? You got nothing to hold me in. We'll talk to you about that, too. Well, let me finish my drink. No, afraid not. Let's go now. Look, I said I was going to finish my drink. Don't lean. Let's can it, mister, and go. I said I was going to finish my drink. All right, mister, on your feet. (laughs) Nothing on him. Let's take him to the office. Sergeant. Yes, sir. Thanks. Sure appreciate it. What's that? Thought for a minute there you were going to have a fight. We took the suspect back to the city hall, then we checked the name through the Marine base in San Diego. Lieutenant Richard Houston called back to say that Rogers had received a court-martial and a dishonorable discharge in January of that year. He'd been tried by a military court on a charge of stealing alcohol from the hospital pharmacy and selling it to the patients in the hospital. We stopped in handwriting analysis, and Don Meyer took an exemplar of the suspect's writing. When we checked by the office, there was a message from Sergeants Bill Cummings and Harry Hansen stating that their investigation had shown that the death of the soldier in Roger's room was suicide beyond any doubt. 7.46 p.m., Frank and I talked to the suspect in the interrogation room. Terrible thing, treating a veteran like this. All right, let's save it, Rogers. There's a few questions we'd like some answers to. I got nothing to hide. All right, what were the conditions of your discharge from the Marine Corps? What do you mean? Did you get an honorable discharge or a dishonorable discharge? I had a little trouble. Lousy officers never did understand what the problems of the enlisted man were. What do you do for a living, Rogers? I work. Where? Around. You have a steady job? What do you mean, steady? One you've held for, say, more than six months? Haven't been out of the service that long. Where'd you serve in the Corps? Japan, Korea. How long are you there? About four or five months. Why'd you come back? I was wounded. How? What do you mean, how? Just that. How were you wounded? Well, I wasn't exactly wounded. I had my feet frostbitten. Mm-hmm. According to this here, you went AWOL and got lost. When they found you, your feet were frozen. Is that right? What's that you got? Your record in the Corps. You got a lot of nerve digging into that. That's what do you got me in here for anyway? I done nothing that puts me in line for this kind of treatment. You know a couple of Marines named Ed Monahan and Jack Walker? Monahan? Walker? No, I don't think I know. You ever register in a hotel on Fifth Street? No, I live over on Hill. You know a soldier named Marty Wilkins? What's he got to do with it? We found him dead in your room. You're cracking up. Yeah, sure, Rogers. We just dreamed we found that body. I had nothing to do with him. Met him in a bar. He said he wasn't feeling too good. Said he didn't have a place to sleep. I let him have my room. Something wrong in that? Be a little kind, and now even that gets you in trouble. You sure you don't know a Marine named Ed Monahan? Positive. There's something wrong, Rogers. Girl at the bar says she saw you leave the place with two Marines. They could have been Monahan and Walker. Well, maybe I know them. I might and still not know their names. You didn't take them up to a room you'd rented in a hotel on 5th Street? No, I told you once I never lived on 5th. Checked with our handwriting man. He says your writing matches some samples we found on the hotel register. Maybe I write like somebody else. No, we don't think so, mister. How about Jack Walker? Maybe you know him, you just didn't remember him. No, I keep telling you, I don't know them. Vera says you do. Well, she's lying. Is she? Sure she is. She's trying to save her own skin. From what? She doesn't want to stand a rap for murder, can't you see? Yeah, go ahead, Rogers. I'm saying nothing until I see my lawyer. You sure you don't want to tell us why I did it? I got nothing to say. Makes it tough, Rogers. 
What do you mean? Just makes it rough, that's all. Looks like you're going to have to stand a murder rap. Yeah? It's the way it looks. Well, I didn't mean it. I didn't. I just wanted to get even, that's all. Just get even. For what, Rogers? For the way the court treated me. Kicked me out. I didn't do anything really wrong. Cop a little alcohol, that's all. No harm done. They look at it a little different. Yeah, that's a trouble. Stinking brass, they're all alike. They don't care what happens to us, the guys in the field. I tried to get a job. I looked everywhere. I just didn't fit. Seemed like everywhere I went, I got into trouble. I wanted like it was when I first went in, like it was after boot camp. Walking down the street, girls looking at you, a Marine, a big man. They took that away from me. They wouldn't let me enlist again. I tried, but they wouldn't let me. You can understand what that would do to a guy, can't you? I don't know. Well, it tore me apart. Right then, I decided to get even with all the stinking gyrenes in the world. They wouldn't let me in, and I hated them. Yeah. Remember what happened the day you gave the two boys the pills, do you? Sure, remember all of it. Oh, they cried for a medic. They weren't big men then. No, sir, they sure weren't. All right, Rogers, we'll get a stenographer. Tell me, Sergeant. Yeah. Did I get both of them? No, Walker's going to be all right. He the young one? That's right. A real nice kid. Lucky, too. Is that right? Yeah, no worries. Really got it made. Uniform, that's what does it. Uniform makes all the difference in the world. Man, well, don't worry. You'll get one. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 13th, trial was held in Department 87, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. Paul M. Rogers was tried and convicted on one count of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Jack Crucian. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Hal Gibney speaking. Tonight, it's Barry Craig, confidential investigator on NBC. That was Dragnet. The name of that episode was The Big Pill. That was originally heard on NBC back on the 19th of October in 1952. Paladin, paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, paladin, far, far from home. Far from home, far from home. Okay, next up we have an episode of Have Gun, Will Travel that was originally heard on CBS back on the 2nd of February. 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 That's always hard for me to pronounce. You want to say February, but it's February. Uh, 28th, 1959. The name of this episode is The Killer's Widow, and it features Vic Perrin, Eleanor Tannen, and Joseph Kearns, and of course, John Daner as Paladin. You know, it's interesting. It also has Ben Wright as uh, Hey Boy, and Missy Wong is always played by Virginia Gregg. I 
don't think she's in this one tonight. But uh, on the television program, they used a Chinese-American, uh, Cam Tong, played Hey Boy. And why they didn't do the same thing on radio, I don't know. I guess they figured you can't see him. But I like uh, Hey Boy. I like the character. I like the way it's done. And I, and I like um, Ben Wright. I'm not crazy. If you listen to it, it's a l- little bit of an insult, I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. This is a good episode. Paladin is accused of taking some stolen money. And so he searches for a way to use the situation to better a woman whom he has widowed. Here it comes from 1959. This is Have Gun, Will Travel, The Killer's Widow. I came here to tell you I'm not an executioner. It doesn't feel good to kill a man. Not a bit good. But your husband didn't leave me any choice. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. (laughs) 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 Sounds wonderful. And then, Mr. Paladin? And then, perhaps a cordial for a nightcap. I do believe I'll be looking forward to this evening a great deal, Mr. Paladin. And I, too. Mr. Paladin! Oh, what? I've been looking for you. Uh, I find you. Hey, boy, your timing is abysmal. Oh, thank you, Mr. Paladin, but uh, credit must go to mailman. He just brings special delivery letter for you. (sighs) Excuse me, my dear. Oh, say, I'll meet you in the lounge later. Well... Oh, she is very high dungeon. Dungeon? Yes, sir, that's what I say. Very high dungeon. Ah, dear Mr. Paladin, I need you for an important assignment immediately, and so forth. There's a $3,000 bonus for you upon completion. Something, something, something. I appreciate you seeing you at your earliest convenience, so... Very truly yours, E.J. Randolph, Coloma Bank... Coloma. Oh, you there not long ago, yes? Yes, about two months ago. Oh, yeah. Ah, here are your two tickets for opera tonight. Take them back, hey, boy. Yes, Uh, what? I'm leaving for Coloma tonight. Oh, must be real big trouble to interfere with lady who was almost kissed. And wire Mr. Randolph. Tell him I'm on my way. Coloma was a poor excuse for a town. It's out alone and awkward in the center of a dry, scorched plain with a few ranches stretching back towards the low mesas behind it. I'd been there before, and I killed a man there. I didn't like the town. I didn't like the people. But Randolph had offered me a lot of money. I found him sitting behind his desk at the bank. Well, Paladin, sure good to see you. Hello, Mr. Randolph. Hey, sit down, sit down. Thank you. Uh... 
How about a little rye to cut the dust? Huh? Yeah, I don't mind. Hey, didn't waste any time getting here. Uh, the distance between San Francisco and Coloma is shorter when there's a $3,000 fee involved. <laughs> right to the point. That's what I like about you, Paladin. That's why I sent for you. Well, here's luck. Thank you. So, what can I do for you, Mr. Randolph? Uh, you did a job for John Griffin about two months ago. He hired you to bring back Steve Morrow. Remember him? You don't forget someone you've killed. Didn't mean any offense. No, no, I'm not offended. Morrow tried to kill me. I had to kill him. Griffin wanted Morrow because Morrow had killed his son. What's that got to do with you? Morrow robbed this bank before he killed that Griffin boy. He took $30,000. I still don't see the connection. Paladin, I've got to have that $30,000 back by the first of the month or I'll lose everything I own. And you need help? Yes. Yes, I need help. Badly. Fifteen years of hard work, building a business and a name for myself. Gone, just like that. Gone and signed over to John Griffin. John Griffin? How does he figure in this? He's the biggest depositor the bank has. He knows about the stolen money, and he's using that knowledge. He's given me notice that he wants to withdraw $30,000 on the first. If I don't have it, the deed to this building and most of the other property the bank owns will be signed over to him. And I don't have it, Mr. Paladin. Well, then, that makes my job fairly easy. Well, how's that? Find Morrow's widow. She must have the money, or at least know where it is. I don't think so. She's still living in that cabin up there on the mesa. Well, the sheriff and I have been up a dozen times searching the place, trying to talk her into telling us where it is. She hasn't got the money. Well, if she had it, she'd have left Coloma and gone someplace else to spend it. Either that or at least paid up the back taxes on the farm. Huh. I thought for sure Rose had that money. Rose? Steve Morrow's widow. You mean Lucy Morrow. Her name's Lucy. Oh. Uh, I'm going to check into the hotel and freshen up a bit. And then what? Ride out and talk to Lucy Morrow. Morning, Mr. Randolph. Yes? Good afternoon, Miss Morrow. I'm Paladin. Did you think I could forget you, Mr. Paladin? No, I suppose not. I'd like to talk to you, if I may. I'm going to work on the rose garden. You can talk there if you wish. Yes, I noticed them as I rode up. They're beautiful. They are. It's an eastern variety, Calinaris. Oh. Must be rather difficult to grow them out here. Oh, it's worth the trouble to have one lovely thing here. They were a present from Steve. He brought me some cuttings after one of his trips back east. Why have you stayed on here? Simple. There's nowhere else to go and no money to go with. Your husband took $30,000 from the Coloma Bank. It's never been found. This house was turned inside out. Do you think I'd be living here like this if I had $30,000? Perhaps not. 
I don't know anything about that money, Mr. Paladin. I don't mean to bother you, Mrs. Morrow. Why do you bother me, then? You knew this before you came out here. I killed Steve. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else, somewhere else. He was an outlaw, a killer. I... Suppose I wanted to come here and tell you that I'm not an executioner. I was bringing him in, and he went for his gun. Doesn't feel good to kill a man. Not a bit good. I know you're not the kind to kill for the sake of another notch on your gun, but... Steve was my husband. Please don't come back here again. Or if you have to, wait until I'm gone. You're leaving? Yes. They're auctioning the place for $276 back taxes. Oh, don't look so pained. I'll get along. Maybe it'll be best. Get out of here, Paladin. Leave me alone, please. Good afternoon, Mrs. Morrow. The Griffin Ranch was the same as it had been. Old, and solid, and well-kept. Run by a man who was old and solid and tough. A man who had lost one son by Steve Morrow's gun and had one son left. A man who could not forget or forgive. Well, you look about the same, Paladin. Come on in, set a spell. I'd just soon sit out here in the fresh air, Mr. Griffin. Fine, fine. What brings you back to these parts? $30,000. Stolen money, eh? A lot of people like to get their hands on that. You ought to have a pretty good idea where it might be. Why do you say that? Well, you were the last person to be with that murdering fool. The way I had it figured, Morrow had the money with him when you killed him. I uh, hear you've been living pretty high on the hog up in San Francisco. Those are harsh words, Griffin. Oh, no, no. Don't get itchy. I was just only joshing. You wouldn't be back here if you had it. Steve Morrow didn't have that money when I found him. And according to his wife, he didn't even have it when he left the farm. Oh, you talked to her? I just came from there. Well, it takes a lot of nerve for a man to go up and talk to the wife of somebody he killed. Hey, you suppose Steve Morrow hid it on that farm of his? Mr. Randolph and the sheriff searched it. I know. Old Randolph's getting fidgety. A while back, he got the idea that Morrow buried the money up on the mesa. <laughs> you never saw such digging and poking around. I swear the mesa's ten feet shorter on account of it. That farm adjoins your property, doesn't it? Yeah. On the south. Why? I hear it's up for auction. Should be worth at least a couple of thousand dollars to him. I'll get it for 276 the taxes. <laughs> Someone will outbid you at that price. I don't reckon so, Paladin. Nobody else is going to bid on it. Those who can afford to bid on it don't have any use for that farm. Randolph might have use for it. Ah, that old pussyfoot. <laughs> he wouldn't know how to plant potatoes. He might know how to dig for stolen money. Hey, tell me something, Paladin. You working for Randolph? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, you are working for him. I might have known. You know, I just assume the money doesn't get back to the bank. Oh? I'd lose about $60,000 in holdings that belong to it. Those holdings will be mine come the first of the month. Well, that's not a pretty way to talk, but at least it's the truth. I see. What happens to Randolph, then? Out. Out in the cold where he deserves to be. If I ran my ranch like he runs that bank, I'd have been out of business a long time ago. Well, 
Getting close to sundown, I think I'll be heading back to town. Oh, Paladin, I hate to see a man like you working on the dark side of the fence. I thought you always roamed the green fields. Uh, which are the green fields, Griffin? Mine are. By the way, you buy that farm just for the taxes. Steve Morrow's widow won't get a cent. Well, now, ain't that a downright shame? She didn't kill your son, Griffin. No, but her husband did. All I hope is that his kin are going to suffer on account of it. That's how I feel about Morrow and her. Come in. Paladin? Well, Mr. Randolph. You, uh, make it a habit, staying up this late? <laughs> I do my best thinking when the town's settled for the night. You've covered a lot of ground today. Getting discouraged? Did you come here to discourage me? Yeah, a lot of territory between Coloma and the Mesa. Morrow could have hidden that money anywhere. Not without telling his wife. Now, since when does a killer stop to worry about his wife? Randolph, whatever you want to say about Morrow, he loved his wife. He'd have wanted to make sure she was provided for him. I even spoke about her when he was dying. His last words were, Rose, tell her that... Wait a minute. Tell her... What are you talking about? Randolph, that money's up there on the farm. You mean she does have it? She doesn't know it, but it's there. Where is it, then? Why, we've torn that place apart. You just didn't dig in the right spot. I'm going up there now and get your money. You wait here. It's one o'clock in the morning. And I'll be digging by two. When I dismounted at Lucy Morrow's, I thought I heard a horse nicker in a nearby clump of cottonwoods. I waited. But all was quiet except for the wind through the trees. Lucy Morrow was a light sleeper. She answered my second knock. What do you want? Uh, put the shotgun down, Miss Morrow. What are you doing here this time of night? The money. It's here on the farm. We've been through that before, Paladin. They ripped my place apart. Every floorboard, every inch of this cabin, the yard's full of holes. You saw it this afternoon. I know, Mrs. Morrow, but... The this... money isn't here. Look. This is my last night in the only home I ever had, and I don't mean to be bothered. Mrs. Morrow... Now get away from here before I blast that shirt right off your back. You wouldn't have to leave tomorrow if I find the money. I'm not wasting any more words with you. Miss Morrow, in your rose garden, is there a bush not doing well? Paladin, it's late and it's cold. Answer me, is there? Well, yes, there is one, but what's that got to do with the money? Flowers need soil at their roots, Miss Morrow, not gold. What? You get me a shovel, I'll show you what I mean. You know, it took me a while to figure out that a dying man wouldn't call his wife Rose. Her name was Lucy. Hold the lamp a little closer. I think we've got it. Now... Yeah, this is it. The leather bag from the Coloma Bank. We'll open it. Yeah. Gold coins. $30,000 worth. Here in the Rose Garden all the time. Drop that. Huh? Raise your hand. What? Come on, do what I say. Good. Now just stand steady. All right, Cleet, let's move in. Keep that light high, woman. 
Suppose we can see you both. Lucy. Yes. When I say the word, throw that lamp at them high, eye level, then hit the ground fast. I'll say when. All right. Now. No more. Don't shoot again. Just stand easy, mister. You shot him. You shot my boy. I didn't have much choice. Cleet. Cleet, boy. We hurt bad. Uh, I'll, I'll be all right, Pa. I'll get you for this, Paladin. Don't try anything foolish, Mr. Griffin. You're already in enough trouble. I'm in trouble. Trying to hijack stolen money. Trespassing, attempted murder. Paladin. Paladin, there's someone coming. Yeah, I heard him. I think it's Randolph. Randolph? He knew I was coming out here. He probably couldn't stand waiting in town. After all, the money belongs to his bank. Paladin! Paladin, you all right? Yes, we're all right. We're over here, Mr. Randolph. Well, what happened? What was all the shooting? Well, there was a little discussion as to who was going to get that bank's money. I won. You, you mean you have the money? You, you found it, all of it? I think so, here. Oh. oh, good. Good, that's it right enough. Now... In regards to my fee, Mr. Randolph... Yes? I want you to give it to Lucy. What? Lucy? I think a woman ought to be able to keep her home if she wants to. At the auction tomorrow, you can decide whether you want to stay or leave this charming town. Thank you, Paladin. As for you, Griffin, get your boy back to your own ranch and bandage that leg of his. I don't think Lucy Morrow cares one way or the other what happens to you. Mr. Randolph wants to bring charges later. That's up to him. As for myself, I'm saying goodbye to Coloma for the last time. Oh, oh, you back, Mr. Faladi. And ready to see the city bright and shining? Oh, best you go away two, three more days, maybe. Why should I? Her. Who? Her. Her lady over there. He's very unhappy when you will not take her to the opera. Well, didn't you explain it was business? Oh, yes, sir. Important business? Yes, sir, but uh, her business more important to her, I think, Mr. Paladin. Uh, he, he maybe kill you, huh? <laughs> I hope not. Well, the best way is the direct way. Excuse me. Hmm? Oh. I hope you missed me. You did miss me. I have no other cheek to turn. Then kindly turn yourself around and leave me alone. I can hardly do that. You see, I've thought of nothing and no one but you all this time. Really? Really. Am I to believe... You are to believe only that which will make you feel better and me feel better. And both of us enjoy a lovely evening together. That, to me, would be a simple solution. So? Dinner? Well... Please. You are a very convincing man. The current issue of TV Radio Mirror has a feature story on the man who portrays Paladin every Sunday night on CBS Radio, Mr. John Daner. Have gun, will travel. 
Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was written by Albert Alley and adapted for radio by John Dawson. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Eleanor Tannen, and Joseph Kearns. Hugh Douglas speaking. Join us again next week for Have Gun, Will Travel. Have Gun, Will Travel. The name of that episode was The Killer's Widow, and it was first heard on CBS Radio on February the 28th, 1959. That same script had originally been used on television. It appeared on TV on March the 22nd in 1958, and then, as you just heard, it was adapted for radio by John Dawson. The original script was written by a fellow by the name of Albert Alley. He was born in New York City in 1919. He left us uh, in 1986. He died in Seattle, Washington. He uh, has quite a resume, both as a writer and a producer. As a writer in television, some of his first uh, things that he wrote were Treasury Men in Action in 1953. I don't remember that show. Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, nine episodes of that. He wrote one, million, uh, one episode of The Millionaire, remember that? John Bairdsford Tipton. A couple episodes of Cheyenne with uh, Clint Walker. Bronco Lane, one episode of that with Ty Harden. Three episodes of The Rifleman with Chuck Connors. Let's see, The Rebel, Johnny Yuma, two episodes of that. That one starred with uh, Nick Adams. Uh, Have Gun, Will Travel. He did six episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel. He did an episode of Tales of Wells Fargo. Remember that one with Dale Robertson. Alcoa premiere, Laramie. He did six episodes. Rawhide, uh, the early Clint Eastwood vehicle, nine episodes. Man from Uncle, 12 o'clock high. A program called Convoy. He did the screenplay for the Disney film The Ugly Dachshund. He did several episodes of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Ironside, uh, the FBI, Hawaii Five-O Cannon with William Conrad, Quincy, medical examiner, uh, Jack Klugman, the American Girls, Project UFO, the Paper Chase, that was one of his last ones in 1979. He also wrote an episode of Vegas in 1980. to buy the world a home and furnish it with love grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves i like to teach the world to sing sing with me
something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. All right, tonight we're going back to February 24th in 1950 for this episode of The Halls of Ivy. We had talked before about how this show dealt with a lot of social issues. And uh, this episode tonight would appear to be about uh, dishonesty among students on campus. In fact, the name of the episode is The Student Thief. Well, it ends up being not quite as serious as, uh, as you might think, but it's a good episode. This one features Gloria Gordon, Ben Wright, and our old friend Gil Stratton Jr., who for many years was on television in uh, Los Angeles as the local sports announcer. But he also had a rich heritage in old-time radio, particularly playing teenage roles back in the uh, back in the 40s and the early 50s. I apologize for that banging in the background. That that seems to be Chester. Chester, what are you doing? Did you get it? Chester says there's a mouse back there, and he's <laughs> he took his shoe off, and he's whacking the desk. Well, knock it off, <laughs> would you please? Okay, he's giving me the high sign. So here we go from February 1950. This is Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume in the Halls of Ivy. This one is entitled The Student Thief. Here it comes. <laughs> gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. And now, The Halls of Ivy. The Halls of Ivy that surround us here today. Welcome again to Ivy, Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, president of Ivy, has been working in his study all morning. But he leaves it now to join his wife, the former Victoria Cromwell of the English musical comedy stage. As he enters the living room, Mrs. Hall says, Oh, I'm glad you're finished, Toddy. Vicky, I am never finished. And why should you be glad? Outside of the fact that naturally you can't stand being without me for a minute. Hmm. You're not going to feel so good when I remind you that today is the faculty tea at Mrs. Quincannon's. Oh, that doesn't disturb me a bit, my dear. A legitimate function of the president's wife. I think it's quite proper that you should attend all faculty teas. Not me. We. Oh, no, no, no. You don't. Uh, no. And not only that, but you need a haircut. Uh, I'll get one next week, Delilah. <laughs> you hate to go to the barber? Uh, my dear girl, I do not hate to go to the barber. Well, then why? I if... do, however, dislike to have the administration of this college subjected to the haphazard analysis and preposterous suggestions of a certain tonsorial artist. The barber, mm. Doc Fish. Uh, Doc Fish. Fish, indeed. 
He seems to be trying to make up for a million years of silence on the part of his submarine namesakes. Well, <laughs> I suppose any barber who's been in the same shop for 30 years has certain rights. Which he abuses constantly. But to a college barber, there is a new generation every four years. You know, Vicky, there are a lot of people... Daddy. ...who never leave a campus without having Daddy. some... Daddy. Huh? You're trying to change the subject. Oh, oh. I want you to get your hair cut... And I've made an appointment for you. Is there a slight strain of bulldog in you? With a trace of bloodhound, I'll be following you all the way. Oh. Do I get some lunch before I tackle the fish? Oh, it's not fish, sir. It's cheese souffle. Oh, is lunch ready, Penny? Yes, sir. But if the doctor likes some no, fish, thank well, you I'll... just the same, Penny. Mrs. Hall has already ordered mine. <laughs> afternoon, Mr. President. Oh, Doc, how are you? Busy. You're five minutes early. Yeah, but there's no one in the chair. Your appointment's for two o'clock, Doctor. I'll be ready for you at two o'clock. <laughs> All right, Doc, I'll wait. Heard your talk in chapel last week. Oh, yes? And? Didn't sound much like a sermon to me. It wasn't. Ministers are supposed to give sermons, ain't they? I'm not a minister. What was you doing in the pulpit, then? Uh, Doc, may I ask you a question? Shoot. If your cat had kittens in the oven, would they be biscuits? <laughs> Step in the chair, Doctor. It's two o'clock. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, that's better. Ah. I think I'll just doze a little. Been wanting to talk to you. Oh, no, 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 please don't. No, no, just cut my hair and your conversation. I'd like to take a nap. Got something on my mind. Glad you stopped in. Because it's important to this school what I've got to say. As long as nobody else seems to take enough interest, it's up to me to do something about it. I'm going to do it. Right now. I give up. What is it, Doc? Know a kid named Eddie Gray? Yes, yes, I do indeed. What about him? He buys a lot of magic stuff at the campus bookshop. You know about that? Oh, yes, yes. A lot of magic stuff and plenty of other things have been disappearing. That's a good trick, too. You mean stolen? Guess that's what you'd call it. About 500 bucks worth. Why do you connect Eddie Gray with this? Not many students buy magic stuff. Uh, Doc, our founding fathers provided that any citizen accused of crime was entitled to a jury of his peers, competent legal counsel, and a qualified judge. Who then are you to constitute yourself judge, jury, and executioner? I got eyes and ears. Uh, so is a three-toed sloth. <laughs> and about the same lofty conception of justice You ought to be ashamed of yourself You know he sold that big car of his Know he's running around the campus Looking like a bindle stiff Looks like he sold all his good clothes Looks like he maybe needed some dough Eddie Gray needs money like I As the saying goes Need a hole in the head 
Have you talked to anyone else about this? Nope. Figured it was your job to handle it. Well, I'll handle it. Are you a betting man, Doc? Well, I know where you can get a little bet down. What's the horse? (laughs) The, um... The, the, the horse is a gray duck. And I'll lay you eight to five, he comes in on top. Oh, Vicky. Yes, my darling. Oh, you do look divine and smell. I have to tell you, darling, that no, our, no, don't our barber friend... No, no, don't even get a little sniff. Well, it's absolute heaven's heaven. No, 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 stop, stop smelling me. <laughs> I must talk to you. All right. Oh, stop. What did Doc Fish do throughout the whole curriculum? Worse, he's completely revised the laws of evidence. Have you seen Eddie Gray lately? Every day, Toddy, at rehearsals. He's just wonderful. Is he making friends? Mm, He's the happiest boy in school. Everybody likes him. And his magic act is going to be the hit of the follies. You remember when you advised him, and I think I did too, to get rid of his flashy car and expensive clothes? Certainly. And he did it right away. Now he dresses just like all the other students. If you can call that dressing. I sometimes think they simply hold a suitcase over their heads and open it. (laughs) They just wear whatever falls onto them. (laughs) Well, what about Eddie Gray? Well, there's been some stealing going on at the campus bookshop. He is around there a great deal, and he's suspected. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yes, I thought so, too. But I have a feeling someone has found out who his father is. And if so, Eddie is being pronounced guilty by association. Oh, no. Oh, I hope not. It'd be too tragic for him just at this time when everything's beginning to go well. I know, but Mike Mallott is too important a public enemy to be kept undercover very long. If someone has found out that he is Eddie's father, well, it's natural to point an accusing finger at the boy. Oh, we've got to clear him, Toddy. I know he's all right. Oh, we're going to try, my dear. Look, I'll ask him to come over, will you? Yeah, uh, what'll we do about the Quinn Cannons? That seems to be a fair question. Yeah. Any answers? Uh, Only one. Uh, I consider it a legitimate function of the president's wife. I think it's quite proper that you should attend all faculty teas. Well, you said that, and then Uh, I said, not me, we. (laughs) That's enough, Victoria. Let's now go on. I don't need another haircut. Mr. Gray, to see Dr. Orr. Oh, show him in, Penny. Uh, d- d- don't go, Vicky. This is your case as much as mine. Well, I'm glad. I want to stay. Hello, Dr. Hall. Oh, Graham. Oh, hello, Mrs. Hall. Hello, Eddie. You uh, sent for me, sir? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, sit down. Thank you. I wanted to see how you were getting along. Oh, great. Thanks to some good advice from you and Mrs. Hall, I've been having a swell time. I never knew there were so many nice guys and gals in the world. Mm, I'm glad to hear that. Eddie... I'm going to be very direct with you. Yes, sir. Have you heard from your father lately? Oh, sure. He sneaked down here to see me ten days ago. He did? Yeah. He knew I wanted a set of Joseph Conrad's books, so he came down and bought them for me. I'm not apologizing for what he used to be, Dr. Hall, and neither is he, but to me, he's been great. Did he buy you the books at the campus bookshop? Yeah, he did. Oh, it's a terrific set. Boy, it sure ruined my allowance. Has anyone told you of the recent robberies at the campus bookshop? 
Why, yes, sir, I did hear something. Has anyone told you that you are suspected? Me? Suspected of stealing? Oh, now, just a minute, Dr. Hall. Calm down, calm down, Eddie, please. We're not accusing you. On the contrary, we want to clear you. But to do it, we'll have to find out everything we can. And you can help us. Tell us everything you know about it. I don't know anything about it. If we're going to try to help, you must do your part. It's beyond just you and us. It's a matter of this college's reputation. And a little thing called justice. Uh, uh, Gray. Yes, sir? Just for the record, have you stolen anything from the campus bookshop? No, sir. Uh, Of course you haven't. Do you know who has? No, sir. You know, but you won't tell. Isn't that it? This can be very serious if you don't, Gray. It involves the honor of the whole college. Look, Doctor, I can't tell you anything. I'm sorry, really sorry, sir, but I wish you'd remember one thing. I've got to do what seems right to me. And please don't ask me to do something that doesn't fit with my own rules. You know, this is where I learned about honor, Doctor, and and values. Right in this room. From you, both of you. You gave me a lot to hang on to. Now, don't ask me to let it go. to the halls of Ivy, we find a tenseness not often to be found in the home of the halls. Oh, please sit down, Toddy. You've been pacing like that for an hour. Oh, I can't, Vicky. I've got to make some sense out of all this. Obviously, Gray is protecting someone else. Mm. It's a terribly difficult spot for you. You who've been teaching him integrity. Oh, yes, yes, I know. Integrity, a splendid, glowing word. Nine letters, the nine old men of character. You know, my darling... It's not enough simply to present the idea of integrity to a youngster. That's merely planting the seed. The harvest comes when integrity is put to the test and found to be a source of pride and self-respect and growth. Fortunately, it's usually a habit-forming virtue. Anyway, that's why we can't afford to have Eddie Gray fail to pass his first real test. Toddy, dear, the longer I know you the more conscious I am of the wisdom in simple decency. Well, I only hope my simple wisdom is adequate to get Eddie clear. If this gets into the newspapers, the boy's life is ruined. With his father's record to help pull him down, he's finished. Even if he's innocent? Oh, his innocence will be shouted down by mob judgment. When a man has been accused in headlines on page one, it's difficult to clear his name with a retraction in small print on page 22. Uh, I've got to make Eddie talk. You'll never do it, William. Eddie has a code. Telling tales, even if justified, violates that code. And you'd be wrong to insist. Someone has to talk. Speaking of talk... Yes? Why don't you go back where you started? Doc Fish, of course. Oh, Vicky, what would I ever do without you? You'd never have your hair cut. (laughs) Oh, 
my dear. Worse than that. Without you to advise me, I'd have far too many uh, close shaves. come with you, or do you think I'll make Doc Fish, uh, Fish self-conscious? <laughs> My dear, if you, Alexander the Great, and Lady Godiva's horse walked into that shop together, the man would never turn a hair. <laughs> oh, he has the imperturbability of intellectual density. Let's go. again, Mr. President. Didn't Mrs. President like your haircut? It was a fine haircut, Doc. But I think you gave Eddie Gray a crooked part. Huh? Uh, Doc, I'm very disturbed about your accusation of the Gray boy. Been thinking about him myself. I talk too much. Always blabbing. Why did you do it? Can't stand his father. Saw him at the bookshop, put two and two together. And they added up to a number on Eddie's back. How did you know who his father was? Friend of mine in Chicago, racketeer, wrote me. Your bookmaker? No, my bookie's a local man. I'm... <laughs> I mean, no, ma'am. Have you told anyone else about this? No, and I'm not going to. I'm going to shut up from now on. Mm, splendid idea, if it's not too late. We've got to find out who is doing the stealing. Can any of your Chicago friends tell you that? Probably could if they was here. I'll help all I can. Sorry I started it. And you don't know anything more than you've told us? No. I just suspected this kid right off. Shouldn't have, I suppose, but I did. When I think something, I speak my mind. Loud, too. <laughs> Beg your pardon, ma'am? Uh, never mind. I was just speaking my mind. It's contagious, I guess. Uh, Doc, uh, you've started something that I, as president of this college, must see through to a conclusion. A campus bookshop can be restocked. But the honor of our student body is something else. You know the kid's innocent, Prexy? Do you know he's guilty? We have an absolute conviction that Eddie Gray is on the level. Look, Mr. President, I'd like to make you one suggestion. <laughs> very unlike you if you didn't. Well, what is it, Doc? Give me a little time on this. If I've given this Gray kid a bad deal on account of I got no use for his old man, and he turns out to be innocent... I figure I owe him a little help. You owe him a great deal more than that, my friend. But I prefer not to have this matter talked about. You understand? Leave it to me. Just give me the time I need, and if I don't keep shut from then on, I'll guarantee you can shave me next time. <laughs> and if he doesn't, I will. <laughs> What a day. And it all started out to be so serene. Mm. Well, there's a small silver lining. You missed the faculty tea. <laughs> True, my darling, yes. I wonder what that old rascal Doc Fish has up his sleeve. Mm. At least he's going to stop gossiping about Eddie. I hope so. You know, Vicky, it's so easy to be swayed by preconceived ideas and prejudices. It's very often most difficult to hold a steady course when your whole being cries out to take another path. What are you thinking about now? Well, just for that <laughs> tiny moment, I digressed, my darling. I, I was thinking of myself and you. I wonder if you remember that day in London when I ran up the stairs to your flat, whistling a tune, gay as the air itself. And when I knocked and you opened the door... My William! What a nice surprise. Uh, Vicky, my darling, I was so close I couldn't pass by without... without... 
Oh, I beg your pardon. I shouldn't have come in. I, I didn't know no, that... William, this is Paul Hunter. Paul, uh, Dr. Hall. How do you do? How do you do? I'm terribly sorry. I didn't mean to intrude. Well, you haven't. We were just having tea. Do you want some? No, I really don't think so, thank you. I, I'd better run along. Oh, no, don't go. Uh, are you a medical man, Dr. Hall? No, I'm afraid not, Mr. Hunter. I'm a schoolteacher. Oh, a schoolteacher. He's a professor, Paul. A very learned professor in a very beautiful American university. Oh, now, Victoria. On your I... sabbatical? Uh, yes. And not too much of it left. Oh, that's pretty tragic. Vicky and I were just talking over plans to send most of the winter on the Riviera. Mm, doesn't it sound wonderful, William? The blue Mediterranean, the white sands, the striped umbrellas and warm sunshine. Yes, it does. Sounds beautiful. We thought we might stay between Nice, Cannes and Monte Carlo for the entire season. Oh, with any luck, I don't see why not. No, of course. Why not? With any luck. Well, darling, if it's all okay with you, I'll start making arrangements. There's uh, quite a lot of arranging to do, you know. Oh, I do know, Paul. Yes, by all means. Let's do it. Oh, certainly. It would be awful if you didn't. Well, <laughs> I'm off then. It's nice to have met you, Doctor. Well, thank you, Mr. Winter. I hope you have a nice hunter. I, I mean, winter. <laughs> Goodbye, Paul. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. He's an absolute pet, that boy. A boy? Oh, oh, yes, yes, he is. A real... Uh, pet. Doesn't it all sound heavenly? Heavenly. William, what is it, dear? You're so down. I wish I were an actor, my darling. I wouldn't let you so easily see my feelings. Your feelings about what, dear? What is it? Oh, the Riviera, under winter skies with me in America, and you with that hunter fellow on the white sands. Oh, William, my, my dear... You thought... Well, you said that... Oh, you couldn't have... Yes, I know, but... You you, did. Yeah, well, I didn't mean that you you could... You thought I was going away with Paul? Well, well, of course. Well, aren't you? Well, yes. Well, that's what I thought. What what did you think I thought? I thought you thought... I mean, I think... I thought you must have thought that... Yes, yes, I still think that what you thought I thought was... Well, well, I I, I just hate to think of it. William, listen. (laughs) Paul is the company manager of Give Them Tears. Oh. And we're taking the whole company on tour. Oh. And Paul, by the way, is very happily married. Oh, Vicky, what an <laughs> idiot I am. No, 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 I'm not. No, no, I'm not. It took considerable intelligence to find and fall in love with a girl like you. Oh, darling, I am a happy man. Oh, not too happy. I want you to be a little jealous of me. So go ahead. Worry a bit. Uh, worry a bit. I, I shall. I shall worry. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. But all the Easter's and Christmases and New Year's. Is... We shall help each other ring the old ones out and ring the new ones in. I can hear the bells now, Vicky. Happy New Year to Victoria and William. Happy, happy. Toddy dear, it's not New Year's Day. It's the twenty-fourth of February. And the telephone's ringing. Uh, the, the telephone? Well, it's uh, probably that hunter fellow to uh, ask if... Uh, oh. oh, 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 yes, the, the, the telephone. Uh, here, you mean. Yeah, that's uh, what I mean. And you don't have to run it down, dear. It's right here for once. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Hall's residence. Who? Oh, yes, Doc. Well, that's extremely interesting. Yes, do, by all means. Come any time. Thank you for calling. The doc's coming over right away. Doc Fish, the barber? Yes. I mean, there's so many doctors of one kind or another around a college, one has to get used to it. By degrees, as you might say. 
Is Doc Fish called Doc? Uh, he holds the degree of Doctor of Inanity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was conferred upon him in 1938 by a group of fun-loving and quite perceptive seniors. <laughs> Not having looked up Inanity in the dictionary, he's quite proud of it. <laughs> by the way, Toddy, were you daydreaming again when the phone rang? Or were you just worrying? <laughs> no, I plead guilty to the first accusation. I was daydreaming. Now, where did you go this time? Oh, down a wrong road for a bit, and then I found you and came back on the right one. Fine trip. I wish I could go with you on some of these meanderings. You always have such a happy expression on your face. <laughs> of course. That's what a daydream is for, for comparison with life itself. And usually life looks a little sorry by contrast. But not mine. No. My life with you, Vicky, is so like a daydream. Beg pardon, that... sir. A Dr. Fish is calling. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Fish. Oh, yes. Ask him in, Penny, please. Yes, sir. Right this way, please, Doctor. And on your way out, sir, I'd like to consult you about a slight cold in me head. <laughs> Won't be necessary, sister. Take a couple of aspirins and hit the hay. <laughs> Hello, Mr. President. Ah, Doc. Mrs. Pratt. Hello, Doc. Have a chair. You have news for us? Yeah, case is closed. Eddie Gray is in the clear and the real crook is known. And I feel like a louse. Excuse the expression, Mrs. Hall. That's quite all right, Doc. You were a louse. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, how did you get Eddie Gray, um... Off the hook? Yes. Same way I got him on, I talked. In this case, I talked to a friend of mine, sort of a tough guy, tough and nosy, kind of a guy that knows how to find things out. He just snooped around till he found a kid that had too much bookshop stock for his kind of dough. Then he brought him over for a haircut and a shave, free. A free shave and haircut? Yeah. We put him in the chair, locked the door, and I started to hone my razor while this friend of mine asked questions. You'd be surprised how chatty a guy can get with a mug like my friend has hanging over him and a razor waving in the background. Who was it, Doc? Mrs. Prez, I've already talked too much, and I ain't saying. But any time you happen to go into the campus bookshop for the next three years, you will see him. He'll be working off his charge account. Hey, look. How did you people get so sure it wasn't Eddie Gray? My husband is a fair judge of character. Yeah, looks like it. What do you think of my character, Dr. Hall? Oh, you're, you're a simple subject, Doc. I am? Yeah, you have a moronic tendency to leap at erroneous conclusions. Yeah? And uh, a strong urge toward character assassination. Yeah? Uh, and a lamentable weakness for turning on a conversation and leaving it running. <laughs> Golly, that's wonderful, Prexy. That's me to a T. How do you do it? <laughs> oh, I, I studied under a great teacher, a doctor of inanity. <laughs> Gee, I got one of them degrees myself. Just honorary, of course. Yes, we know, Doc. Good night. Good night.
I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good night, everyone. Good night. We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Earl Ross, Gloria Gordon, Ben Wright, and Gil Stratton, Jr. Tonight's script was written by Nat Wolf and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Ken Carpenter speaking. Now, here we the people over most of these NBC stations. That's what daydreams are for. It's a comparison of life itself. And sadly, life usually looks a little sorry by contrast. One of my favorite things in the Halls of Ivy, well, I have several. I guess probably everybody's favorite thing is when Professor Hall goes off into his daydreams and thinks about usually where he and Victoria met or one of their early dates back usually in England or perhaps when they first got to the United States. Very touching. And I love the way he comes out of the dream. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And just like a real dream, usually it's some noise or some disturbance that he incorporates in his dream that actually ends up waking him up. As the music indicates, it's time for Gunsmoke, everybody. And this time we're going all the way back to 1953 on the 16th of May to listen to an episode called The Big Con. Gunsmoke did several episodes about con men coming into Dodge City. This one might be one of the, one of the best. If you were a banker, would you loan someone a, a large amount of money? and use a security, a no-lose poker hand? Hmm. Well, let's see what happens in Dodge City, Kansas, back in 1874, 
I kind of like this one because Doc turns out to be somewhat of the hero in this one. So here it comes, Gunsmoke and the Big Con. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Trouble could start any time in Dodge, but usually it was at night that the men made their play along Front Street. And so ordinarily, I was up a good part of the night and did my sleeping in the morning. It was a rare thing for me to be out in the early day, and for some reason, it worried Chester. I just don't understand why you couldn't sleep, Mr. Dillon, unless you had the colic or something. <laughs> I feel fine, Chester. Just got a few things to take care of at the bank, that's all. Yes, I know, but the bank's open all day. Uh, you know what they always say, Chester. It's the early bird that catches the worm. Yeah. My ma used to tell us that one about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> used to root us out of bed every morning at daylight on account of... It's a good saying. Yeah. I don't know whatever become of my brothers, but I'm sure not living in a very big house. Well, maybe you ought to come in here more often. <laughs> I got no business with the bank, Mr. Dillon. Well, morning, Mr. Fogg. Morning, Chester. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Morning, Fogg. I'll be over there in a minute as soon as I straighten this stuff out. Good morning, Marshal. Good morning, Mr. Papp. You taking money out, Marshal, or putting it in? <laughs> Neither, Mr. Papp. This is government business. <laughs> oh, I see. Who are those men, Marshal? What? I say, who are those men? Uh, I never saw them before. That one in the middle holding the envelope. He seemed pretty oh, excited God, about I something. Certainly, sir. What can I do for you? I want a loan of money immediately. Well, we'll do what we can, sir. First of all, how much do you want? Twenty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand. Mr. Pat. Yes. Hey, excuse me, Mark. Gentlemen, this is our president. Uh, you'll have to talk with him. I heard you say twenty thousand dollars, gentlemen. That's a lot of money. What do you have for collateral? My collateral, sir, is right here in this envelope. You may look at it, but don't reveal it to these other gentlemen. He's playing don't, cards. Don't name them. I'm afraid I don't understand. Well, I've been in a poker game at the Texas Trail all night long. Right now, there's about $40,000 in that pot. There are some good hands out. I've put every cent I have into it already. Now, they've given me just 20 minutes to come up with more money. <laughs> well, I certainly wish you luck, sir, but I never You've heard of... You've seen my hand in that envelope. You can lend me the money on that. But surely, sir, you don't expect the bank to enter a gambling game. Now, these gentlemen are also in the game. They came along to see that those cards aren't changed. The other men are watching the table at the Texas Trail. It's all fair and square, I assure you. Well, gentlemen, I... I'll gladly pay you 10% interest, sir. 
You've only got five minutes left, Hook. Uh, come along, gentlemen. We'll step in the back office. Well, now that's about the craziest thing I ever did here. He must have a pretty good hand, Chester. I know, sir, but you don't think Mr. Papp's going to let him have $20,000 on it? It certainly looks that way. Yeah, there we are. I'll take care of this and we'll get out of here. Uh, this is government stuff, Fogg. You know what to do with it. Certainly, Mr. Dillon. Now, let me see. If... Marshal. Uh, Marshal, I want you to come with me. What? Uh, these gentlemen, there's a poker game, and I've got the money here. I think you'd better come along just to be safe. You mean you gave him his $20,000, Mr. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Now, come over here, Marshal, I'll tell you. All right. Hey, Marshal, that man hooked there has four aces and a ten in his hand. It's a sure thing. Why, the bank stands to make $2,000 on this loan, and it won't take but a few minutes. You run the bank, Mr. Pepper. but are you sure you ought to take a gamble with other people's money this way? I can't lose. There's not a chance in a million. But I want you to protect this money till I get it back here. Well, all right. I'll see nobody takes it at the point of a gun, if you think that'll help. Good, good. Now, you, you come along, then. Hook's only got a few minutes to get back in the game. <laughs> There's my money, Mr. Shaneways. I'm calling you, sir. You must have a pretty good hand, Hook. All the trouble you've been to. You will see it. What have you got? Five little hearts, all blue. <laughs> I win, sir, four aces. But look at my hearts. They read two, three, four, five, and six. Straight flush. Your face is loose, Hook. Aces. Aces, how could he have a straight flush? Got it dealt right out of the deck, Hook. Right out of the deck. Ah, nice pot. Had enough, but he... He won. Mr. Pat. Sir, I, I, I don't know what to say. Twenty thousand dollars. Just like that, $20,000, it's not even my well, money. Now, Mr. Papp, don't you worry, sir. I only borrowed that money. You'll have it back. You have my word as a Confederate gentleman on that. Look, please. Look, I've got to have it back. It's not my money. I have to put it back in the bank. I'll be ruined if people find out you about it. You only this. loaned the money, sir. I lost it. Now, I'll send for it today, sir. I'll wire my agents. They'll have it on the next Santa Fe that leaves St. Louis. No, look. No, I don't think that'll happen. My word as a gentleman, sir. But you must be patient. I shouldn't have done it. I had no right to do it. Chester. Yes, sir. Go tell Doc I want to see him. Yes, Mr. Dillon. All right. Everybody. Now listen to me. All of you. Now, I don't want a word said about this to anyone. The bank's important to Dodge, and this could ruin it. Do you understand? We have no reason to spread All right, then, see to it. Or there'll be trouble for all of you. Well, certainly, Mark. No reason Mr. Papp. 
Hold up a minute, will you? Mr. Papp? Marshal, I should have listened to you. I'm ruined now. Now, look, Mr. Papp. Maybe Hook's got money, I don't know. But if not, we'll figure something out. People will give you time. No. No, they won't. As soon as they hear about this, there won't be any bank. They won't trust it anymore. But they have to. It's the only bank there is. What'll Joanne think? My kids. I can't face it, Marshal. I just can't face it. Now, look, you just go back to the bank and tell the cashier to keep his mouth shut about this. You just got to give it time. Sure, Marshal. I'll go. I'll go. Marshal, sir. I am sorry for that man, but he has no reason to worry. I'll send for the money at once. Yeah, you do that, Mr. Hook. Send for the money. Uh, gentlemen, what are your names? My name's Sheenways, Marshal. Now, I'm sorry for that banker, but it's nothing to do with me. I won this money fair, and I'm keeping it. Sure, Mr. Sheenways, of course you are. Who are you, Mr. Warden? And I agree with Shaneways. Gambling money's fair money. Nobody is arguing that, Mr. Varden. But remember, gentlemen, what I said. Don't talk about this. Oh, well, hey, uh, Matt. Chester said you wanted me. What's happened? Didn't hear any shooting. Everything's all right, Doc. Oh, well, I see. Oh. <laughs> you look familiar. <laughs> don't you? I haven't had the pleasure, sir. Oh, well, maybe not, no. No, I guess not. My mistake. Uh, never mind, Doc. Come on. Yeah. <clears throat> Chester said he'd wait at the office, Matt. Look, Doc, I want you to go over to the bank. Mr. Papp is pretty upset. See what you can do for him, huh? Give him a bromide or something. Uh, sure, Matt. What's wrong with him, anyway? He just lost $20,000 in a poker game. He lost twenty. And he wasn't playing. He lent the money on the strength of what looked like a good hand. That man, Hook, came into the bank for it with the other two. Oh. He brought his cards along and raised the loan that way, huh? What? How did you know? Oh, I, I heard of it once, Matt. It was down in New Orleans. Oh, that was years ago. Well, what happened? Well, same thing. Father got the money and he lost it. That's all. You mean it was fixed between him and the others? Oh, sure. It was fixed all right. Well, how did they find out? Well, the fellow that borrowed the money got drunk, and he talked, and they put him in jail, but, but the others got away clean. Look, Doc, that gray-haired man you thought you recognized, his name's Hook. Are you sure you never saw him before? Oh, a lot of people look familiar at first glance, Matt. You know how did you... Look, in New Orleans, you, you didn't know the men who pulled the trick on the bank, did you? Well, people said that they'd come down on the riverboat. I was doctor on the Tennessee Bell then, but... I never met them, not to my knowledge, anyway. You recall hearing their names? Well, that was a long time ago, Matt. Look, Doc, those three back there may have just pulled the same thing now. Hook looked familiar to you. Maybe he remembers you, too. Well, he just said he'd never met Doc, me, Matt. Doc, he could be lying. Well, sure, but I'm, I can't place him. I probably never saw him before. Well, go see what you can do for Pep. He's in pretty bad shape. Oh, sure, Matt. 
Gamblers were always drifting in and out of Dodge. Some of them were crooked and some, it had been said, were honest. Ordinarily, it didn't matter much one way or the other. Most men could take care of themselves. But now the bank was involved. The citizens of Dodge had their faith in that bank, as well as their money. I gave it a lot of thought the next hour or so, and finally I had an idea that seemed like a start anyway. I explained it to Chester, and together we went back to the Texas Trail. Shane Ways and Varden were idly cutting cars. And Hook was at the bar talking to Kitty. <laughs> Hello, Matt. Kitty. Yes, sir. Honest, Kitty. Uh, do you know Mr. Hook? Uh, this is Marshal Dillon. We met earlier. Why, Kitty. yes, indeed. This morning? I must have smelled trouble, Kitty. I got up early. <laughs> You're always smelling trouble, Matt. Yeah. Leave your beer, Hook, and come with me. What for? Just do it. Whatever you say, Marshal. Miss Kitty, I'll be back. Yeah, sure. All right, Varden, Shaneways, get up and follow Chester. What? Is this an arrest? Now, what would I be arresting you for, Mr. Shaneways? What? Nothing. You've no reason. That's right. All right, come on, let's go. Just follow her along, please. Uh, what is the idea of bringing us in here, Marshal? Well, good morning, gentlemen. What can I... Oh, hello, Marshal. Chester. Hello, Lum. Lum, these men want their pictures taken. Oh, no, not me. I don't. I've got plenty of pictures. Can you do it right away, Lum? No, certainly can, Marshal. And, gentlemen, you'll be the very first to stand before a new drop. The ancient temples of Greece. It'll lend you dignity, power. What's the idea of this, Marshal? Lum's just going to take your pictures, that's all. Oh, uh, Lum, front and side views both, huh? Oh, certainly, Marshal, certainly. And then, gentlemen, if you leave Dodge, any of you, it'll make it a lot easier for the law to find you and bring you back wherever you go. This is outrageous. I won't stand for it. Wait, I... Pardon. wait a minute. I agree the Marshal is being a little high-handed, but after all, he must protect himself in his job. But since we've done nothing wrong, we have nothing to fear. Sure. Hook's right, Wolf Garden. I'll go first. Are you ready, Lum? No, right this way, sir. Chester, you stay here and wait for the pictures. Bring them over when they're finished. Yes, Mr. Dillon. Lum's a pretty good photographer, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. These aren't bad. Uh, lock them up in the safe, will you, Chester? All right. You think this will keep them in Dodge, sir? No. Not if they really get scared. They're guilty, all right, aren't they, Mr. Dillon? And I can't prove a thing, Chester, one way or the other. Uh, Mac! Oh, Matt. Bad news. What, Doc? Well, this is Pap. Sent for me a little while ago. I just come from there. Oh? Matt, he... He killed himself. Suicide. Pap? About an hour ago. 
For that poor man. How's Mrs. Papp taking it? Not a tear so far, but I suppose she'll break down later. Neighbor woman's there with her. Does she know why he did it, Doc? Well, it seems he told her all about it, and then he went out and he shot himself. Then there's no stopping it now. The story will be all over town in no time. Well, what are you going to do now, Matt? I don't know, Doc. I just don't know. I'll buy you a drink, Kitty. Gosh, I'd like it, Matt, but I just said I'd join Hook over at his table. Well, I'd like to talk to him, too. I'll just sit with you for a few minutes. That's fine with me. I don't know about him, though. I don't think he'll object. I uh, just have time for a smoke, Mr. Hook. I didn't think you'd mind. Why, no, of course not. You're quite welcome, Marshal. May I buy you a drink? No, thank you. Marshal, I want you to know I sent for that money today, just as I promised. Oh? You're a little late. Late? Mr. Papp shot himself. He he did. You mean Mr. Papp, the banker? Yeah. But why, Matt? He always seemed so quiet-like. Maybe Mr. Hook will explain it, Kitty. Well, now, Marshal, you can't hold me responsible in any way at all. I didn't say I could, Hook. But you seem kind of nervous about it. Well, naturally, I'm upset. After all, that man did me a great favor. Yeah, sure, sure. But I don't think the people in Dodge are going to like it much when they find out. Tell me something, Mr. Hook. When were you in New Orleans last? New Orleans? Mm Mm-hmm. Why do you ask that, Marshal? Just curious. Well, sir, I've never been in New Orleans. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's good enough. For now. Goodbye, Kitty. I'll drop by later. Sure, Matt. And, uh, Mr. Hook, it still goes about not leaving town. I like it here, Marshal. Yeah. Yeah, you should. Maybe I should have arrested Hook and his friends without any evidence and just seized the $20,000 and put it back where it belonged. That might have saved people's faith in the bank, but I figured my job was to give them faith in the law, and I couldn't do it that way. I'd made it plain to Hook what I suspected, and I hoped it'd scare him into making a mistake. And it did. But I didn't learn about it until next morning when I was having breakfast at the Dodge house. Mr. Dillon? What? I've been looking everywhere for you at your room, Delmonico's, the Texas Trail, everywhere. This is the last place I hit. Well, what is it, Chester? Here. Look at here. Just you read that. Marshal, we're taking Doc along. If you follow us, we'll kill him. Where'd you get this, Chester? He was under the door when I opened up this morning. I ran up to Doc's right away, and sure enough, Mr. Dillon, he's gone. Come on. Uh, go check the depot and the stage line, Chester. I'll cover the livery stables. All right, sir. That'll take me longer, so you get our horses ready. I'll meet you at the office. Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Marshall, you're out early today. Not early enough, Andy. Yeah? What can I do for you? I want to know if you rented out any horses last night. Well, sure, a few. 
Why? Did you rent four to anybody, four in a bunch? Why, yes, I sure did. Be back today, so they said. Who said? Well, strangers to me. Paid me in advance, though. <laughs> the greenhorn. What time was this, Sandy? Oh, uh, it was late. Yeah, it was way after midnight it was. Something wrong? Yeah. Tell me, Andy, what they look like? Well, one was a was an old fellow, gray hair. Didn't give me his name, though. I don't think I got much of a look at the other one. You have any idea which trail they took out of town? I know I don't. Uh, one of them said something about St. Louis. Uh, but that's not much help, is it? That might be. Oh, thanks, Andy. Oh, one thing, Marshal. Yeah. If you're riding after them, those horses, they got to just crow base. I didn't figure they could handle anything better. There was nothing to do but take a chance and ride east. Luck was with us, though, and within an hour we cut their trail. Four horses leave a pretty fair track, and we followed it riding hard. By dusk, we could tell by their sign that we'd nearly caught up with them. And soon after dark, we spotted their fire. These were gentlemen, maybe, but they were mighty poor hands on the prairie. We left our horses and went ahead on foot. We gonna shoot it out with them, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, we can't chance it, Chester. They'd kill Doc. Yeah. Hold up a minute. Now, that's their horses just ahead. <laughs> they sure staked them a good piece from camp. Yeah. Lie down, Chester. What do we do, Mr. Dillon? I just wait. Those men are mighty green at this game. I think we can steal their horses without any trouble at all. Just leave my foot, huh? Yeah. Now, look, Chester, when we get those horses, I want you to pick up ours and take the whole bunch out of sight. I'm going to crawl into that tall grass just to the left of the fire there and hide until morning. Mr. Dillon, why can't I go with you? Every time we get in trouble, you always send me off alone somewhere. You always do everything alone. Do as I tell you, Chester. Yes, sir. You just wait till you hear gunfire. And then ride in fast and bring all the horses. All right. Good luck. By dawn next morning, I was half burrowed into the ground and covered by blue stem grass, not more than 30 feet from their camp. I could hear their talk all right, but I couldn't see them unless they were on their feet. Shaneways had already gone out after the horses. Pretty soon he was back. With their ropes, that's what every last one of them. What do we do now? You and Shaneways go after them. I'll stay here and guard Doc. Now hurry up, we've got to get moving. Come on, Bardner, we'll never find him. I ain't coming. I don't know why he's going. You can have this country, Doc. I don't know why you ever left that soft berth you had on the Tennessee Bell. Well, I didn't have to leave it. <laughs> That's more than you can say about New Orleans. <laughs> more talk like that, you'll get your throat slashed like a fat shoat, Doc. Oh, spoken like a true gentleman, a hook, or whatever your name is. Now, if you hadn't talked so much in the first place, you wouldn't be where you are now. Oh, you're a fool, Hook. I might have seen you somewhere, but I sure couldn't connect you with that New Orleans business. <laughs> anyway, you're giving yourself away now. Yes, Hal. Don't you know there wasn't a thing the law could do until you ran? Oh, you'll be caught now for sure, yeah. Oh, I doubt it. Why don't you untie my hands? I can't eat this way. You'll manage. 
I let Hook and Doc wrangle on till I figured the other two men had walked about a half a mile from camp. Then I waited till Hook had his back to me, and I stood up slowly, moved quietly forward. Doc saw me and almost spoiled the game, but he caught himself in time and then started another argument with Hook. I was about 15 feet away when Doc suddenly kicked the coffee pot off the fire and all over Hook's legs. And then I moved. Hit him again, Matt. He can stand it. No, no. No, that's enough. All right, get up, Hook. Uh, oh, Marshal, easy now. Don't, don't shoot. Get Marshall. Doc untied and be quick about yeah, it. Yeah, get me untied and be quick about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, that feels better. Oh, Hook. If I weren't a professional man, I'd punch you right in the eye. Never mind, Doc. Here, put his gun in your belt. Yeah, I'm just mad enough. I'd like to have an excuse to use this. Uh, Matt, what are you doing? You'll see. Uh, uh, Matt! Why, you'll have them back here in no time. I got a surprise for Hook, but he's not going to like it much. Huh? Oh, Where uh, they got the money, Doc? He in that saddlebag, right over there. The yellow. All right, get it, Quill, you quick. Hurry up. Them two didn't get very far away. All right, Doc, if you got the money, get up on the horse. You too, Hook. Come on, quick now. Come on. You're under the comb. You see him, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I see him. They're shooting at us. Well, I'll fix that. All right, hold it, Chester. They can't hit us from there. Come on, let's ride. You just going to ride off and leave them, Matt? Well, we got you, Doc, and we got Hook, and we got the money. Oh, but they'll, they'll die out here, Marshal. Because none of us know how to live on this prairie. Oh, maybe they'll learn. It's a good way. You're murdering those men. Oh, they'll be all right for a few days, Hook. You'll all meet in prison. All right, ease up. Oh, we've left. Oh, well, what do you plan to do about them? They're full of fight right now, that's all. I don't want to have to kill them to take them. But in a few days, they'll be so hungry and scared, we can walk right up to them. Nobody will get hurt that way. Neither them or us. Mr. Dillon... Yeah, what is it, Chester? Mr. Dillon, later, in a couple of days, let me come back and bring them in. What? Just me, this time, alone. Well, now, Chester, Please, I... Please, uh... Mr. Dillon. Okay, Chester. You can do it. Alone. Thank you, sir. All right, Hook. Ride a little faster there. We ain't got all day. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was especially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Ralph Moody, James Nusser, Joe Cranston, Paul Dubov, and Peter Leeds. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This Monday night on the Lux Radio Theater, June Allison recreates her original screen role and appears as the girl in white. 
Don't miss the Lux Radio Theater this Monday night on most of these same CBS radio stations. George Walsh speaking. America now wakes up to three million clock radios and listens most to the CBS Radio Network. was Gunsmoke from 1953. The name of that episode was The Big Con. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, though. We'll be back with an all-new show in two weeks. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. <laughs>